Okay, let's get back to Colossians then, shall we? We're reading in Colossians chapter 3 tonight. It's a fairly short reading, so it's going to be interesting to see how, how long this service lasts. <laughs> yeah, so Colossians chapter 3, and we're reading from verses 18 to 25, but let's go back a little bit, just for the sake of connection, uh, to remind ourselves of where he is in what he's saying. Let's go to verse 15 where the Apostle Paul is saying this, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether the word or indeed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father. Now we reach tonight's passage. <laughs> Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. And do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Okay, I've gone on one verse beyond what the reading is supposed to be, but uh, that just finishes off that section, doesn't it? So, let's go back then to where we actually are, and it's a couple of weeks since we looked at Colossians, and just to remind you, if your memory's as bad as mine, you need it, um, where we've been, uh, we talked about the fact that Colossae is a very small city near the big city of Ephesus. Ephesus, largest city in the Roman Empire, apart from Rome, 220,000 people living there. Colossi, one-tenth of the size. That's about half Paynton, 25,000 people, and that was Colossi. And it had been a, a, a major city. It had been a wealthy place. Still had some pretty wealthy people living there, but it was a small town. So it's a very different kind of place that Paul's writing to. He said, too, that it was in a, a, a group of three uh, towns in a, a valley on the Lycus River, Hierapolis, Laodicea, and Colossae. It was the least important of those, but all three of them were served by the same Christian worker, and probably people in all three towns had become Christians through going up to Ephesus to the market or something like that, and uh, just coming into contact with the Apostle Paul when he was lecturing in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And uh, uh, churches had started. Paul had probably never been to Colossae at this stage, but uh, he very much wanted to get there, and uh, with this letter, he sent another one to a man called Philemon, who was a, a wealthy slave owner, and said, get the room ready, I'm going to come as soon as I can. Whether he did or not, historians argue about. But certainly, he'd heard about Colossae, he didn't know the people too well, but he wanted to do them some good. Now, we've looked at the structure of the, the letter on the way through, and chapter one, we said, consisted of three things. First of all, a prayer. He tells them what he's praying for for them, and then a poem, and then the whole point of this thing. What is this all about? He, he's talking about um, the, 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 the way in which uh, 
they can grow as Christians, and they need to, because Paul has heard that there are people coming into the church in Colossae who are teaching something a bit weird, that Jesus is just an angel, lots of other angels, that there are lots of routes to God, and they need all of these different angels and spiritual powers and things like that to get the pleroma, the fullness of God. And so in the poem, he talks about two things. First of all, uh, the way that Jesus fits in with God's creation, with everything we see around us. And then second, the way that Jesus fits in with God's new creation, with the way that we've become Christians and the whole world has changed for us. And he says that Jesus is first in the universe and first in the church. This is a poem, and in the middle, uh, you've got like that little uh, couple of verses, 17 and 18, where it says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. So looking outwards towards creation, you can say, yep, Jesus is first in God's creation. And looking into the church, you can say, Jesus has got to be first there as well. And so in the poem, he's saying, first, Jesus is the head of God's physical creation, and that Jesus has the same influence in the spiritual world too. too. Then he gets on to the point, and he says this, my goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, they being the people in Colossae and in other churches like it that he's not got to speak to yet. I want you, as part of this, to be encouraged in heart and united in love so that you may have the full riches of complete understanding. I don't want to be half Christians who don't really understand too much of what's going on. Oh, you'd still get to heaven that way, but you'd miss out on so much. And you might easily by di be diverted away from the truth by people who know a bit more than you do and can just bamboozle you. So I want you to have the full riches of complete understanding to know the mystery of God. What is the mystery of God? Namely, Christ. The more you know about Jesus and how he fits in as the central piece of the jigsaw puzzle, the more you're going to understand what you've got yourself involved in and where you're going. And in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So we moved on that from that to say, well, this is kind of like the shape of the letter then. You've got this bit about who Jesus is and who you are, chapter 1 and uh, in the first five verses of chapter 2. And then Paul starts doing this bit where he uses the word, therefore, therefore, therefore again. And you've got this kind of argument that goes from one stage to another. One, therefore two, therefore three, therefore four. And you've guessed what's coming, therefore five. And so he goes on through that, uh, through um, six different points he wants to make. And that's the arguing bit of the letter. He's making an argument at that point. When he talks about who is Jesus in chapter one, he's just making statements. There is no negotiation. There is no way of looking at it any other way than this. Jesus is just the first in creation. Jesus is the first in the church. And when he gets to the end, again, like in the bit we've been reading now, he starts making statements. This is how it's got to be. We are not arguing now. We're not putting together an argument. We are telling you on the basis of what I've said so far, this is what's got to happen. And so what he's doing is, is very much as he does at the end of Romans, as we saw this morning, he talks about, okay, with all of this in view, this is how you live this new identity. And uh, we saw last time how he says uh, in the first part of chapter 3, if this, all of this is true, then hold a funeral. Die to your old life. There are some things that should not be part of your life. And we talked about what they all were last time. I'm not going to go through them again. But there's list 1 in verse 5 and then list 2 in verse 9. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language. And we said the first lot is for, about things that are lurking inside us. Lust, evil desires, greed, impurity, all of that sort of stuff. And the other list is about what comes out, what other people notice because they feel the effects of it. And it's those things in list one, inside us, simmering in there, that produce the wrong effects in list two. And so Paul says, put it to death. Just die to it. Say to God, look, I don't want that to be part of me anymore. I want to live my new life and just be dead to all of these things. 
And the second thing he says is, if this is all true, then change your clothes. You can put on the new nature. It's not a case of, I must be better, I must do this, I must try hard. And, you know, trying to do five things are, are, are better than you did the day before or something like that. Going through some formula every day and everywhere and getting better and better. I, it's, it's not that kind of thing because it's just like putting on clothes in the morning. God has already given you the new you. <laughs> you just have to claim it by faith and live it out through the day. So he says, put on these things. Compassion. You don't have to work it up inside yourself. God will show you that if you allow his love to flow it through you. Kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. You can get all these things from God. And uh, patience means keeping on going with one another, and it also means forgiving one another. And he says, those are all the different parts of the dress that you've got to wear now. But there's one last bit that goes to the top and makes it all look amazingly coordinated. And that is love. Above all these things, put on love. And the more you allow God's love to flow out through you, the more you will look like this kind of person. And it'll be coming from inside because God is instilling it into you. And all you do is live out what he gives you in the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so he's got this far with it and he talks a bit about uh, having the peace of God in your heart, having the word of Christ in your head and uh, giving thanks to God with your mouth. And that was where he left it at the, the last one we did. So where are we now? If this is a diagram of the whole book, then obviously we're in this last bit. How do you live out this new identity? He started talking about that, and now he wants to say, this is how it works out in different situations of your life. Six key relationships, and those are the verses we've got tonight. Wives, husbands, children, parents, uh, slaves, and masters. He goes on from there, as we'll see in, in, in chapter, four, uh, well, chapter three to four, talking about, uh, chapter four, uh, talking about praying, walking, and talking. He's got things to say about prayer. He's got things to say about the way we walk, in other words, the way we behave as we live our life in this world, and the way we talk, what comes out of our mouth. And he wants to put in those last three little bits of advice before we reach the end. And then at the end, he wants to talk about people. Now, this it always seems like the business end of the book. Oh, yes, he's just talking about his friends and sending greetings to people and telling about people they don't know. But every name in there is for a purpose. Paul doesn't waste ink. <laughs> And so when he dictates the last part of the chapter, he draws people to their attention who he wants them to think about because they exemplify the sort of behavior he's talking about. He's actually subtly and subconsciously pointing to models that they can follow in many cases. So uh, that's, that's for another evening. But the point we've got to look at tonight is that first one, the six key relationships. So let's have a look at some of those. First of all, he talks about wives. Then he talks about husbands, he talks about children, he talks about fathers, he talks about servants, and he talks about masters. Those six relationships sum up three of the most important areas in which we have to live out our lives. First of all, there's marriage. If you're married to somebody else, then that, is a, 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 that has potential for enormous fulfillment and happiness. It also has potential for enormous disaster. I'm not even looking at Auntie at this point. <laughs> But uh, there's a great story I, I read this afternoon about a child who uh, came back from seeing a, a pantomime. It was Cinderella. And she was excitingly telling her, her, her aunt about the story of Cinderella and everything that happens in it. And her auntie said, yeah, 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 yeah. Look, I know how this finishes. Uh, they lived happily ever after. And he said, no, they didn't. They got married. <laughs> and, yeah, well, and it isn't necessarily happy ever after, is it? The way you approach your marriage is one of the most important things 
uh, in determining how your life's going to go. So that's an important area, obviously. And in those days, everybody was married. Singleness is another issue, which we won't get into tonight. But marriage was pretty much for everybody in those days. Unless you were a slave, of course. In this case, you weren't allowed to get married anyway. But even within that, slaves had relationships with other slaves. So there's an important point being made here. Then another area is family. Because most marriages, not all but most, will have children. And how you live in the family is another important area. It creates all sorts of possible sources of joy and also all sorts of flashpoints. And uh, uh, that's another area in which children and parents have to work out their relationship with one another. But then again, you can't just sit at home watching Netflix all day. You have to go out to work. And so you've got this third area as well, servants and masters. And it's interesting, in, in all three areas, Paul starts with the weaker person in the relationship. The wife, in his society anyway, doesn't have nearly as much authority as the husband. The child is in the hands of the parents. The slave is in the hands of the master. And so Paul starts with the weaker one and then turns around to the, the powerful one and says, and you have got the responsibility too. Now that is quite unique. That did not happen in the way that Greeks or Romans or even Jews discussed marriage when they wrote rules for how people ought to behave. And when Paul swings around and says, you have an irresponsibility too, the husband, the father, the master, are probably one and the same person. So he gets three tellings for uh, the, 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 the one that each of the others get. Now you might be thinking as you look at this, now haven't I read something like this before? And of course you have. If you were here for the series we did on Ephesians not all that long ago, not that long ago, you remember that it's not just Colossians 3, there's also in Ephesians 5, a similar list of instructions to wives and husbands, uh, children and parents, servants and masters. And that's got something to do, obviously, with the fact that uh, Paul was writing these letters round about the same time. And in the bundle with Philemon and with Colossians, there was also probably Ephesians, and they were all taken round at the same time. So he's got very much the same thoughts in his mind when he writes Ephesians and he writes Colossians. And it's an interesting thing to study, to put the two of them together, read one, then the other, and make comparisons between them. Because you can see how the same thoughts are going around in his mind, but he writes in a different way for the different situations. But he does do the wives, children, parents bit in both letters. And says pretty much the same things, although he strikes slightly different notes. However, those are not the only places in the New Testament where you get this stuff, because there is also 1 Peter 2 to 3. Nothing to do with Paul. Completely different apostle. Writing to a different part of the world. Well, it's still in what's now Turkey today, but whereas Ephesus and Colossae are both in western Turkey, Peter was writing to the north, to Bithynia, to, 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 to northern Galatia, to places like that, up near the Maxi. And they were people who had no contact, probably, with the Christians further south and the further west. Um, so there's a different strain of teaching going on there. And many people said, well, obviously, it's because Christian teachers had a kind of stock message that they wanted to give. And it covered all of these areas of life. Because they realized, both Peter and Paul, and probably, I don't know, Apollos and all sorts of others, Silas, that these three areas of life are the three areas in which it can be most easy to make mistakes about living out the new life. And so they all do the same thing. And to compare Peter with what he has to say with the others, well, that's interesting too. But let's, let's just look at those six relationships anyhow, shall we? First of all, there's wives. 
And what Paul says to them is, wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Hmm. And this raises all sorts of questions, doesn't it? First of all, what does submitting mean? And uh, if you remember, when we looked at the Ephesians, it, it does not mean saying, oh, you're right, you're always right, I'm always wrong, no, no, you, you just do what you want, that's okay, I don't care, no, trample all, all over my toes, spend all my money, I don't care, you just, you, you're in charge. That is not what submitting means. Submitting is a military word, really, and it means to place yourself under somebody, to willingly accept, by your will, the authority of somebody else in a certain situation. Now, in Paul's society, the husband was the public place of visage. And that meant that a wife who put herself forward, oh, my old man knows nothing, God, dear me, I have to take charge of everything in the marriage, and, and, and put herself forward as a leader of the household, was going to give the whole household a bad reputation. At the time when Paul was writing, that was actually happening in fashionable households in Rome. There were some very bossy and mouthy women around with lots of money, making their husbands feel quite insignificant. And uh, often in, 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 in uh, Roman royal circles, they'd just abandon one husband and go on to another um, uh, quite freely and easily, a bit like early 20th century film stars, just to get what they could out of them. And this is the background that Paul's writing against. We've got to be careful how we read this because we have a much more equal view of marriage and what marriage is like nowadays. And that is not wrong. And what they had back then was not wrong either. The important thing is that the principle that comes through the whole thing has got to be mutual respect for one another. But it's not right to say, my wife must submit to me. I am in charge. The Bible says so. You've got to ask, first of all, what is submission? Second thing is, what does it mean that the husband is the head of the wife? Now, that's not a phrase that's used here, but it's often that's used by people to say, the man should be in charge. We talked a lot about that when we did Ephesians. So I'm going to put up some slides in a minute that might just remind you of what we said at that point. And then, why your own husband? And again, we talked about that when we did Ephesians, so I'll put up something there as well. But just to give you an example of what I think can go wrong in a Christian setting, here's a website I found yesterday. And I read out chunks of this to Anthea, who's most unimpressed by it. In fact, I was sitting in my office, say, uh, I was actually working on Romans at the time, and, you know, I just found this thing out of the blue and thought, whoa, I'm going to use this for Colossians. But she was most unimpressed by it, and I kept on getting these things out, sitting at my, printer, at my computer, and eventually the responses from her stopped. So I stuck my head around the door, and she just walked away. She got bored of the whole thing. <laughs> so there you go. And uh, what took my attention was this headline here. Why Christian women should bow to their husbands. And this guy apparently believes that this is something that Christian women should do. When he comes home from work, you bow to him. You, 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 yeah, I know. <laughs> okay. He says, the custom of women bowing to their husbands, otherwise known in older times as obeisance, goes back to the beginnings of human civilization. As Christians, we know that not all cultural customs are biblical, and we know that the, uh, the commands of the Bible transcend all cultures and times. In this post, I will prove that the ancient custom of wives doing obeisance towards their husbands is not simply a relic of ages past, but indeed is a command to wives found in the Bible. For Psalm 45, verse 11 is, is where he gets that from, just in case you're interested. But we won't go into that one tonight. But it, it, it's horrific. Uh, he goes on to, to have a page on practical ways that wives can incorporate bowing into their marriages. This image below from the... Uh, no, no, hang on. The first would be greeting him as he comes home from work, as seen before. 
So when I come home from work, Anthea, okay, all right, I'm retired, but when I, when I come in the door, you have to sink to your knees in the manner that you see in that picture. I'll bring you out a, pic, a copy of it so you can, you can do it, right? Okay. And, uh, and then the image below uh, from a vintage ad is routinely mocked as sexist, yet this is very biblical behavior for women to do towards their husbands. That's the one. And uh, so there you are. You come into the room in the morning, okay, and you offer me up a cup of tea on a tray. I don't think this is going to happen. <laughs> I know it's going to work. In fact, after we'd done this, we went out for a cup of tea somewhere yesterday, and, and we ju- as we just got into the car, I said, um, I don't believe you've bowed to me yet. And what she said, I will not repeat to you. But anyhow. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and he's, he's got another uh, page which worries me even more about the biblical case for domestic discipline. God's chastening of his wife is an example to all husbands. Have, husbands have both a right and a duty to chasten their wives. And he says on the page, the case could not be more clear. The practice of a man using corporal punishment on his wife, also known as wife spanking or domestic discipline, very much aligns with the teachings of the Bible. A man using corporal punishment on his wife images God's behavior as a husband to his wife, the people of God. And wow, it just just stuns me that uh, he's able to do that. I don't know who the man is who writes the, the, the website. I know he calls himself uh, Larry Solomon, but I know that that is a made-up name as well because he gets so much hate mail because of his sight, he's got to do it that way. But I think this is sad. This is somebody trying to take what Paul is saying here to a very different culture at a very different time and just trying to apply it in the most legalistic and uh, inhuman way that you possibly could to the relationship between a man and a woman. Um, it's not a power relationship. It's a relationship of mutual trust and confidence. It's a nourishing relationship. Not I'm in top, I'm on top, and you're in the bottom. How about this idea about headship, though? Is the husband the, the head of the wife? This comes from 1 Corinthians 11. This is the slide we saw last time in the Ephesians series. Now, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So you've got this pyramid, the wife, and the head of the wife is the husband, and the head of the husband is Christ, and the head of Christ is God the Father. So that's in the Bible, isn't it? The man is the head of the woman, the husband is the head of the wife. But actually, when you start looking at it, you can ask all sorts of questions about it. First of all, there's no other place in Greek literature where one human is called the head of another. So what does the word head mean? It doesn't mean head of department or head of a country in the way that we use the word head today. And it's very difficult to work out actually what the word head does mean. And the Greeks and Romans didn't think anyway that the head was the decision-making part of your body. We're used to that idea. Your brain is in here. And so you're standing there in the shop and you think, no, I have a solemn, serious decision to make here. Is it a Mars bar or is it a crunchy? Mm." And it's your head that makes the decision. So it guides the rest of your body. And your arm goes out and reaches the crunchy or Mars bar, whatever. And uh, and the other hand gets the money out, and so on and so forth. And your body follows the head. The head makes a decision. That was not the way the Greek and the Romans saw it at all. They thought your decision started somewhere down here. But they don't talk about that at all. They don't talk about the husband as the the midriff or the the pancreas or whatever of of the wife. That doesn't happen at all. And if Christ is the head of the husband, only the husband, where does that leave the wife? Christ is the head of every man. What about every woman? Are we all in Christ? It sounds as if that doesn't just mean authority over. It means something different, doesn't it? If God is the head of Christ, that's even more serious, isn't it? What happens to Christ's equality with God? God is the head of Christ. Jehovah's Witnesses would love that one. But is that what it really means? 
And I don't think it is. I think this word head, when you look at it, and there's been a lot of research done in this whole subject over the last 30 years, lots of arguments, still not settled, but the only way that makes sense of it for me is uh, what somebody suggested, which is that the head is the visible bit of you. It's what you see in public. I mean, when you meet somebody for the first time, you don't look at their knees, you look at their face. It's their face that's the leading thing about them. And so the head is the bit that appears in public. And so um, if the head is the bit that can be honoured or dishonoured by the next bit down, that makes sense of that word. <laughs> so God the Father is the, 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 the head of Christ. And Christ either honours or dishonours his Father in the way he behaves. And Jesus did everything absolutely perfectly. So God is the head of his, his glory, his wonder, his love, it was all represented perfectly by Christ. He did not dishonor his head. The husband, well, Christ can be honored or dishonored by the husband because the husband is the public part of the marriage. He's out there doing things in society in the way that the woman wasn't. And so the woman can honor or dishonor her head by the way she behaves. And similarly, uh, the wife uh, the husband is honoured, or uh, sorry, the husband can can honour or dishonour Christ by the way he behaves. If he's if he's a, a a bad friend to people, if he's forever losing his temper, if he's a a, a businessman who who pinches stuff, things like that, he's dishonouring Christ. And if Christ is his head, then he has to go and show in public uh, what this Jesus looks like that he follows. Similarly, then the wife is the one who honours or dishonours the husband. If husband is the head of the wife in, in, in the marriage, that means that what she does, the way she behaves, will either bring honor or dishonor on the family. Christ brings glory to the Father, the husband lives for Christ in the world, and the wife brings credit to her husband. That, it seems to me, is what that verse is saying. It's not talking about a power structure where one is in charge of the other. And it's important that uh, we understand this because in the Roman world, Women didn't count for very much. William Barclay says this, under Jewish law, a woman was a thing. She was the possession of her husband just as much as his house, or his flocks, or his material goods were. She had no legal right whatever. For instance, under Jewish law, a husband could divorce his wife for any cause, while a wife had no rights whatever in the initiation of divorce. In Greek society, a respectable woman lived a life of entire seclusion. She never appeared on the streets alone, not even to go shopping. She lived in the women's apartments and didn't join the menfolk even for meals. From her, there was demanded a complete servitude and chastity. But her husband, <laughs> he could go out as much as he chose and could enter into as many relationships outside marriage as he liked and incur no stigma. Both under Jewish and under Greek laws and custom, all privileges belong to the husband and all the duties to the wife. It's against this kind of background that the Apostle Paul is saying, no, there are responsibilities both ways. And while you don't want the woman to disgrace the marriage by wresting power from her husband, it's not about power in the first place. It's about uh, building a relationship which mirrors the relationship between Christ and the church. Then he says, submit to your own husbands. We said, this is another question. Why is that? Well, in 1 Timothy, you find the answer. Because in Ephesus, which the place where Timothy was, there were women who were being taken away from the truth.
by other people's husbands. And uh, Paul writes to Timothy that, that women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. No time to explain that verse again, but you know, he's saying they need to continue in faith, love, and holiness. Do not deprive each other of sex, he says in, in 1 Corinthians, except by mutual consent and for a time, and then come together again. And women were withholding from their husbands any kind of sexual contact because they felt they were too holy to be involved in it. Why do you feel like that? Simply because people were teaching that kind of doctrine. Oh, if you have a baby, you, you become despoiled and dirty and sex, ooh, it's a horrible thing. Ooh, you've got to take your clothes off. Ugh. And they were getting the wrong idea completely about what relationships are about. And Paul says, you can be saved through childbearing. You can still have children. Uh, what's important is faith, love, and holiness. It's not abandoning sex. And so he says that to the Corinthians. And in 2 Timothy, he talks about these teachers directly. And he says, they are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women. And it wasn't just in Ephesus that was happening when uh, Paul left uh, Titus in Crete at the same time that he left Timothy in Ephesus. Titus had the same problem going on there. And uh, you get the same verse in Titus being subject to their own husbands. Why? Because Paul says there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers. They must be silenced because they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach. And so Paul's saying to the women, listen, you be in subjection to your husband. Put yourself under his direction and his rule. Don't listen to these other guys who are married to other people who are telling you, oh, no, 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 you mustn't get close to your husband, otherwise you'll lose your sanctification. It's not like that at all. Okay, but then he swings around and speaks to the other people, doesn't he? Talks to the husbands. And what does he say about the husbands? Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And this is revolutionary talk. Because in those days, for husbands to love their wives was not unknown, but pretty unusual. And one of the reasons that we have one or two documents in which husbands lament their wives who've died young and say how wonderful they were, it's because those things were so rare. It just didn't happen in most marriages. Marriage, says Joshua Mark in the World History Encyclopedia on the internet, marriage was considered the foundation of society in many cases among the upper class, but it was a kind of business transaction in which the purpose of sex was to produce children and romantic love in a marriage was a kind of luxury that some would enjoy, but many others apparently would have to do without. Men were free to, and almost expected to, engage in extramarital affairs with women, young boys and other men, as long as their partners were not free-born Roman citizens. That would have been scandalous. Sex was considered a normal, a natural, normal aspect of life. Husbands frequently visited prostitutes and brothels or encountered them at parties or festivals. Prostitution was not only legal, but considered as natural as, as natural an aspect of society as employing people to sweep the streets and clean out the latrines. Messy job, but somebody's got to do it. Can't do without it, really, can you? That was the way that prostitution was seen. The minimum legal age for a woman, girl to be married was 12 and for a woman 15, but most men married later, about the age of 26. <laughs> this was because males were thought to be mentally unbalanced between the ages of 12, 15 and 25. There is something in that, really. No, no, let's not get into that. They were thought to be ruled entirely by their passions and unable to make their own judgments. Girls were thought to be far more mature at an earlier age, an accepted fact in the modern day, and so were ready for the responsibilities of marriage when they were often considerably younger than the groom. And so you get older husbands 
younger wives. And an old husband who's been around the block a bit obviously feels he can show, the show a thing or two. She's only just brought out a child here after all. And so the husbands take the rule over the, the, the girls. And Paul says, no, husbands, love your wives. That's the way you show your Christianity. Not having some sort of power struggle going on in the family, but by both you're playing your role in society. And however much changes, however much society has different expectations of two people who get married in the biblical way, those principles have got to come through. Because your marriage has got to be a picture of what Jesus has done for the church. It's a picture of how Jesus and the church relate to one another. She is his bride. And so the way husbands treat their brides here on earth and the way the bride responds to the husband's love tells you a lot about the way that God has planned things to be. So that's the first pair. Right. Let's talk about children and parents, shall we? <laughs> and uh, this one is children obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Uh, most of the kids that I read this out to are not very thrilled with this, this uh, particular instruction. Um, but what does it actually mean? The first thing to say is obey doesn't just mean you do everything your mum and dad tell you. It doesn't. Honestly, it doesn't. But no, no, don't get too, too excited by it. It's, it's not going to be that way for all your kids. But you don't have to do everything. What it means is listen attentively and then do it. Because it's easy for kids, especially when they reach teenage years, to become very sullen, not listening, not listening, listening, you're all horrible, I hate you all, and they're not paying attention anymore. And they may go through the motions, oh, it's my tomorrow, you're the washing up, is it? And they do it, but they don't do it joyfully. And what Paul's, the word that Paul uses here is this, listen attentively, get into the spirit of it, see why they're asking you to do this. You know, you know, it's not fair, you never ask her. Just get on with it. And, 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 realize that they have an authority over you which God has put into place and do it. Mind you, in everything as well, the next thing to say, doesn't necessarily mean everything. <laughs> because you may be the child of a family that wh where you're asked to do things that are wrong. Um, and you may not want to, uh, to, 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 to follow some of the instructions that you, your parents give you. Can they stop you being a Christian? No, they can't. Can they stop you being baptized? Yes, they can. And I think this is part of the in everything that's being talked about here. It pleases the Lord more. If you want to be baptized and the parents say, no, we don't believe in this stuff and we don't want you to believe in it either. It's just a phase you're passing through. Respect their judgment. And God will be pleased with that. That you're following all parents. You may disagree with them, but you get along with it until you're old enough to stand on your own feet and decide for yourself. So everything means everything that's not against the way of God. But ultimately, your allegiance is not to your parents. Ultimately, it's to Jesus. So when there's a clash there, clearly, Jesus wins. But in everything that's, that's, uh, that's not absolutely essential, uh, then uh, you do what your parents say. And the third thing is, it's not just about us. Obeying your parents isn't just a good thing to do. Being a, a child that's, that's in subjection to your parents doesn't mean uh, that you're just, just a nice person. It's about God. It's about pleasing God. And if you want to please God with your life, if you want to be a Christian young person, then what you've got to do is live in harmony with your parents. There's that great verse, do you remember, in, in the Old Testament, the first commandment of promise, it says, Obey, your, uh, honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land. What does that mean? 
It means that if you live in a family where there's not strife and tension and argument going on all the time, you'll actually prolong one another's lives. And your days will be long in the land because well, you still get run over by a bus or something. But apart from that, um, naturally you live in a relationship of harmony that will extend your life. And so that's why Paul says this. Who is a child anyway? That's the other question you've got to ask. Because the Greeks had different words for this. That's a nepios. That's basically a baby or a toddler up to around the age of four. Then there was the pideon or technion as it was sometimes called. And that's the child at the next age. Still very dependent on the parents. And then from the age of about 12 onwards, we get the technon. And this is a word that's used here. And you go through that stage when basically you're a candidate for the youth group or a discover camp, or something like that. And uh, then after that, you become a neoniskos, which is a young man, and you go off to university or something like that. Now, Paul is talking about the technon here, the child who is old enough to make some decisions on his or her own, who's got a thinking brain and, uh, and is able to make rational decisions. Oh, not all children, are they? <laughs> anyway, and... Uh, uh, so that's the kind of person who's being addressed. This is not addressed to three-year-olds. This is not addressed to 20-year-olds. It's addressed to people who are still under their parents' authority, but can still make decisions for themselves. That's why, for instance, in the Old Testament, you find that the book of Proverbs and the book of Ecclesiastes is written for young people, for these technon people in that kind of age group, because they will have decisions to make. And that's why the book of Proverbs starts by saying so much, respect your mother's teaching. Don't forget what your father told you. Build on everything you've got from your family so far. Because you are now able to stand on your own feet and make your own decisions. And so it really counts when a child who can make his or her own decisions say, I decide to do what my mom tells me. <laughs> I decide to follow my father's advice. Uh, what is a, a technon? Well, here's a, a from a, a, an American church's website. It's not quite as clear-cut as this, but this is a description of it. In the natural sense, the technon is a teenager, beginning at, beginning at the age of 12 to 13 until approximately 25 to 30 years old in that society. Anyhow, that was when a son could assume his father's business. A technon was a young man who was being trained in his profession. That's quite as clear-cut as this. But anyway, it's also a time when the rebelliousness of youth, if it had not been dealt with fully in the Nepios and Pideon stages, never known it dealt with fully in the Nepios and Pideon, would reach full flower. Teenagers are generally known for wanting their own way, thinking they know everything, not wanting any accountability. On the other hand, at this stage of life, they can experience tremendous growth and are capable of learning a tremendous amount. Well, I think there are a lot of generalizations in there, but you get the flavor of it, you know. These kids are at a point where they could go one way or they could go the other. If you want to follow the Lord Jesus, that means following parents first. But, oh yeah, and it's, it's important to remember that we often put uh, young people down because in our society, they don't get a good press. Listen to this. We live in a decaying age. Young people no longer respect their parents. They are rude and impatient. They spend all their time in the pubs and they have no self-control. It is happening to our young people. They disrespect their elders. They disobey their parents. They ignore the law. They riot in the streets and claim with wild passions. Their morals are decaying. What is to become of them? The young people of today think of nothing but themselves. They have no reverence for parents or old age. They're impatient of all restraint. As for the girls, they are forward, modest, and unladylike in speech, behavior, and dress. Where are these from? The letters column of the Daily Mail? No, actually. That one was inscribed on a tomb in Egypt 6,000 years ago. That one was Plato in the 4th century BC. 
And that one was Peter the Hermit in 1274. <laughs> so people have been saying those kinds of things down through the years. And so it's important to realize there is such a thing as epibiphobia, fear of young people. <laughs> and I think young people, especially because they have so much freedom in our society, are not necessarily uh, looked at with as much favor as they should be. This is Tanya Byron, who's uh, both a university lecturer, Professor Tanya Byron, and a presenter on TV. And she says this, we live in an increasingly risk-averse culture where many children's behavior is constrained. We raise them and educate them in captivity because of our anxieties. We're constantly hyper-vigilant. Our anxieties are fueled by stories and images of violent and aggressive crimes. And then we label children as troublemakers or failures because as a society, we often fail to see their potential. And that can certainly be the case, can't it? And young people can have a hard time. And that's why um, uh, Paul says something to the parents as well as to the children. Just before I get there, though, this is one quotation she makes in her article, this is an article from The Guardian, uh, which comes from Torbay. So I just thought that's interesting. Daniel Olaya, age 16, of Torbay, says, at the bowling centre where I live, they actually have one of these noise machines, the mosquito, to stop us from congregating outside. It's like we're as bad as insects and they want to scare us away. We're not taking drink or drinking, we just want to chat with our mates. I feel very sorry for teenagers sometimes because there is so much ephebiphobia around in society. They can feel very, very constrained, caged, and, and, and not allowed to be themselves. And so Paul says, fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Now, it's important you understand what some of these words mean. Fathers is a word pateres, and that does mean fathers. But it probably means parents. <laughs> because it's used again, the same word in Hebrews chapter 11, where it's talking about Moses, you know, by faith, Moses, by faith, David, all that kind of stuff. And the story of Moses, when it's told in Hebrews chapter 11, contains the detail that by faith, his fathers put him in a basket and floated him down the River Nile. It was his mom, wasn't it? It was his parents who took the decision together. But it's the same word in Greek, pateres. And so pateres seems to mean just parents, father and mother. So Paul talks about the fathers here. They were the ones that took the lead in the family. But actually, the mother part of this deal as well. Parents. Do not embitter your children. What does embitter mean? It's the word erethizo, which means to stir up to anger. Don't create flashpoints in the family. If there are ways in which you can get them to do what you want them to do without actually having World War III breaking out every five minutes, then that is the way you should run your family. Because the more you stir them up to anger, the more bitterness will remain in the atmosphere afterwards, and it will poison the relationship. Try to do things in such a way that your children are, are, are part of a harmonious household. Uh, and don't constantly lay down the law in such a way that it starts another fight. Do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. What does that word mean, discouraged? Well, that can be the end result. And this is a word that's used only once in the New Testament. It means broken in spirit. It's used only here because it's talking about the kind of brokenness that results when the people who should be your models and your guides and your inspiration in life just give you such a hard time that you can't relate to them anymore. And there are young people like that who, in the words of, 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 of uh, one youth worker's manual, have been abandoned to their peer group because their parents have just lost all respect for them. 
by the way they behave, their inconsistency, their harshness, the way they've run the family, their inconsistent attention, sometimes all over the world, sometimes just not there for you at all. And so Paul says there's a two responsibility here. Children obey your parents. Parents don't embitter your children. Then we get to the third and final one. You'll be very glad to hear. And uh, we're going to look at this pair of relationships. First of all, servants or slaves, really. Although we don't have slaves in our day. So just as I've been suggesting that in marriage and in the family, we're to transmit the, the principles of what Paul's saying into a modern day situation, so the same applies here. And it applies to our working relationships in life. Slaves, you see, were a massive part of the economy in Ephesus and in Colossae. Uh, they would have been about a quarter of uh, the population. And we know from Colossae, from the, the, the little work that we've done on it, estimating the size of the auditorium and how many people you could get into it, and the answer was 5,000, that probably they have one slot for every five people in the, in, in, in the town, so that's 25,000. And there are other measures we can apply. And uh, we know of that 25,000, something like 6,000 minimum would have been slaves. Now, People have often criticized these passages in Paul by saying, well, Paul doesn't tell them that slavery is anti-Christian, that everybody counts where God is, is, is concerned, and a, a slavery ought to be abolished. It would have been very, very difficult for Paul to say anything like that. And in this, in this passage particularly, he's writing to a bunch of people he's not met before, and uh, it's not saying to say, so we must end slavery now. I mean, it's just such an ingrained institution. It did not disappear from the Roman Empire for another six centuries after Paul wrote those words. Just a hundred years before he had written, there was the Spartacus Rebellion, when a bunch of slaves uh, in the house of a, a gladiator training school had, had, had broken out and had started a, a small army. They terrorized part of, of uh, Italy for two years and was put down with enormous violence. 6,000 of them were taken back as prisoners to Rome and crucified in the streets. It was horrendous. And it was a massive, massive revolt. It shook the Roman Empire to its very foundations. So 100 years afterwards, people were all thinking, whoa, there are lots of slaves around. We must not let them get above themselves. Otherwise, we'll have complete anarchy and we'll all be murdered in our beds. So there was no way you were going to get rid of slavery <laughs> at that point. And what Paul was trying to do was just... Light the fuse of a bomb that would go off eventually and would mean the end of slavery in the Roman Empire. And he did that partly through the letter to Philemon, in which Philemon is told to welcome back a runaway slave and to treat him as a brother. How can you keep somebody in slavery and treat him as a brother? Paul does not say, but he leaves Philemon to work that one out. And what he's doing is exposing the internal contradictions of this massive inhuman system in which people ruled the lives of other people in a way that was completely ungodly and unbiblical. But he had to say, okay, in the meantime, this is how you had, should behave. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. And the same thing applies in everything, as we said before. And he says, not only when their eye is on you. You see, there were so many slaves in the Roman Empire, they got used to going through the motions, doing what they were told to do when they were being watched, but otherwise just sloping off and doing nothing. Um, Ashley was talking this morning about a, a, a remote uh, railway yard that he used to visit from time to time in Cornwall, which is right next to the beach, and they've got holes in the fence where when there are no trains coming in and there's nothing much going to be happening for the afternoon, the staff can just go to the hole and sit on the beach for an hour or so. 
and uh, you know, watching when the boss's eye is on you and sloping off the rest of the time. Paul says, no, that's not what you should do. Obey your earthly masters in everything. Not only with eyes on you, and not, he says, to curry their favor. Not with eye service as men pleasers, is the way the old-fashioned versions put it. And that word, men pleasers, we don't find anywhere else in Greek. It seems to be one the Apostle Paul invented for people who just kind of, yes, sir, three dice full, sir, yes, whatever you say, sir. Just because they're trying to impress the boss, but they don't really mean it. And so Paul says, you're not in there to curry their favor, to make it easier for yourself. Well, what are you doing? You're working with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. If you're a Christian, you work with honesty. You do your work to the full, and you show your reverence for the Lord by doing that. Why? Because you are actually serving the King. That's the important thing. You're doing this for Jesus. And, uh, and uh, Paul says that uh, uh, to them, doesn't he? That it is cr the Lord Christ that you are serving. Your king is Jesus. It's not just your master. It's beyond that point. It's like, I suppose, if you're a soldier in the, in the British Army and you've got an impossible sergeant in charge of you, sergeant major, whatever, and, uh, you know, it's hard to, 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 to live under his control because he's so harsh, he's so domineering, and you just can't stand him and he can't stand you either. Why do you keep going? Because it's not him you're serving. Because you're part of an army that's serving the king. And so you put up with it and you carry on with it because ultimately it's the king you're interested in. And that's what these slaves are hearing here. You're serving the king. And then he goes round to the masters as well. And with this we're finished. Masters, he says, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. And if it was revolutionary to make a husband love your wives, this is even more revolutionary. The idea of, of doing anything that is right and fair to slaves was just crazy in the ancient world. Aristotle, great philosopher, but in his Nicomachean Ethics, which is one of the great books he wrote, he says the issue of justice doesn't arise with slaves because slaves are property. <laughs> and only people can have rights. And so slaves, you don't talk about justice and fairness where they're concerned. And Paul's saying, oh, yes, you do. <laughs> they're made in the image of God. And if they are Christians, Galatians 3.28, they are neither slave nor free. Before God, they count just as much as you masters do. And so he says, provide your slaves with what is right. Don't deny them what they need. Provide them with what is fair. Don't favor one slave over another so that you're unjust in the way that you distribute the things that you give to them. And remember that you also are a master in heaven. Don't forget who your real master is. And he says, if you behave in this way, in your marriage, in the way you, you, you behave in the family, and in the way you operate at work, then the world outside will see there is something going on here which is completely different. We know from history, don't we, that less than 300 years after the Apostle Paul wrote this letter, the Roman Empire had seen so much of Jesus Christ being lived out in ordinary people's lives all around the Mediterranean basin, all over the empire. That uh, the Roman Emperor looked at them and said, Christians here, Christians there, Christians everywhere. If you can't beat them, join them. And so the whole Roman Empire became Christian. The greatest revolution in history by ordinary people doing what these six pieces of advice told them to do. I'm going to hand back. Hand, uh, is, it, is it out to, to Steve? Okay, let's just pray as Steve is walking here. Heavenly Father, 
Ah, we're talking about some very nitty-gritty things tonight, and we're living in a different culture, so we have to translate all the time. But we can't fail to be hit by the importance of the instructions that you give us here, and by how difficult it is sometimes just to live them out, and help us in our relationships, in marriage, in the family, uh, in work, in all of the different connections of our lives, to reflect Jesus in such a way that he gets the glory, and people see who he is. We ask it for your name's sake. Amen.